Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, before we get started, just want to remind people that they can uh, sign up for the new Hayes-Goldberg joint at um, Reagan35x.com. Fun story, Toby Stock, who's the third partner in all of this and a very good friend of mine and formerly a vice president of the American Enterprise Institute and very impressive guy, a dean of admissions at Harvard Law School. Apparently, the first time I mentioned his name, on this podcast, I said, oh, we were, you know, we're really up and running, Steve Hayes, me, and this guy, Toby Stock, and apparently his fiance was was very aggrieved by this. So I want to say we're very excited that Toby's part of the team, and he's going to be our resident suit. I just meant it in terms of the fact that most listeners don't know him because he's a back-of-the-house kind of guy. Anyway, very excited to do this. I uh, recently wrote a G-file responding to, well, it's sort of teeing off or using as a point of departure a piece by uh, Jane Coaston. Coaston? Yes. At Vox, who writes, her beat is essentially uh, my world, such as it is, uh, which is she writes about the right a lot. And she wrote a piece titled, uh, Question for Conservatives, What If the Left Was Right About the Right? With with regard to race. Was that the exact title? And I think that, yeah, that was the title. And I think the point I wanted to make was like, I do not in any way want to obfuscate racism on the left. Mm-hmm. I think that whenever you have these conversations, it just turns into like, but Democrats are right. the party of Jim Crow, as if we all died in 1964. And I think that it's important to note that it is not – what I was not trying to say is like, ah, the left has been like this prism of racial justice right. for forever. I think that I, I've had this conversation before. I think that racism on the left looks different mm-hmm. in the same way that like anti-Semitism on the left looks different than anti-Semitism on the right. You can mm-hmm. make the argument that in both cases, anti-Semitism is a unique form of prejudice because it's a conspiracy theory right. where it's not that these necessarily these people are like like there's how uh, Christian identity refers to non-white people as mud people. That's not the argument they're making. There's like all Jews are super, super powerful and in charge of everything. Right. But it looks different on you know either side of the political aisle. But I think that it's worth noting that the use – and I in my piece, I talked about instrumentalized racism, mm-hmm. which is in my view – and I, see, I, th- I think about this a lot. And perhaps it's because I'm surrounded by people who are in the media who talk about things like this. But the idea, not necessarily that like racism as it, it, the idea is that racism as a political weapon, mm-hmm. that it's effective and that its effectiveness in some way makes it worth using. Mm-hmm. And in the piece, I used a couple of historical examples. But I also think that, you know, we saw it with in South Carolina against McCain. Mm-hmm. But we see it even now when people have conversations about Trump's remarks where it's more that like, oh, this is like. 18th level political jujitsu while it's racist but it's also brilliant mm-hmm. which i think in a lot of ways and i didn't get into this as much is deeply insulting to conservative voters mm-hmm. the idea that the only thing that would really appeal to conservative voters is racism you know you couldn't sell people on tax cuts you couldn't sell people on limited government it's like you know you needed you needed one more ingredient for the soup and the ingredient was racism mm-hmm. i but i also think that that is a concern and goes with my concerns about conservatism as kind of turn there's I try to separate between like conservatism, the philosophical project, mm-hmm. and movement conservatism, mm-hmm. which is trying to get the philosophical project into law mm-hmm. and power. And those are a lot of times two different things. But I think that 
movement conservatism's lack of guardrails with regard to race and concerns about kind of reflexive anti-leftism that like, well, as long as you're not one of them, you're one of us, Mm -hmm. which is how you wind up with terrible people at CPAC every year. And then Mm -hmm. CPAC eventually has to be like, you have to leave terrible people. But sometimes not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they get to speak all the time. Um, But I think that what I was trying to say is, you know, if there were racism is endemic, but I think the use of instrumentalized racism, the idea of using racism as like a political tool that is effective and somehow like, ah, you know, this is speaking to the forgotten people or this is how real people talk, which is never it. People who say that are never the people who are the real people. You know, they're not going like the people. No, there's who, a huge amount of sort of class condescension going yeah, on. Yeah, there's a lot of real America where I don't live, but right. those are the real America. Yeah, that like real America. You know, like I, I'm hearing a lot of people who live in like the Upper West Side talking about like, well, real Americans. Right. I mean, I'm like real America. You know, I, right. I'm fr- I'm from Ohio. I was pretty. Me and real America were doing pretty well, and as as I remember, like we like that was looked down upon in real yeah. America. No, there's it, it's almost it's not quite as bad, but it's sort of like if you live in the Midwest and you're blue collar and you didn't go to college, you're almost like a an Aboriginal American, right? Authentic, living in their natural habitat. Right. Yeah. right. It turns into one of those like old Shatterhands books that's written <laughs> by like a German who's just like, ah, the West. Have you ever been to the West? No. Have you ever been to America? No. Do you speak English? No. Right. But I understand the West or something. It very much does become like that, where this idea that like, you know, and I think that that's something um, I always am kind of entertained when Kevin Williamson will write about Appalachian poverty and people like outrage. Like, how could you say these cruel things about like the people of the land or something like that? Which just immediately leads me to that Blazing Saddles quote about like these are you know the people of the earth. You know, morons. <laughs> but I think that there is something to be said about that the class condescension, but also the idea that it that it's effective mm-hmm. and that effectiveness means it's moral in some senses. And I'm aware that the whole like but he fights thing mm-hmm. is continuing apace. But I think that it's worth thinking about racism within the conservative movement. And I think trying to do so, and I recognize this is impossible for most people to ask, and I, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, maybe that was too tough, but to think about it in a vacuum. Like, imagine if Democrats did not exist, if you didn't have to do things with a constant eye to whatever your political or ideological opposition is doing, would you be doing the same things? What would that look like? And what would decisions made about race look like within conservatism? Mm-hmm. And I think you know this has been an ongoing problem. Jackie Robinson protested outside the 1964 Republican National Convention over Barry Goldwater and wrote, there are a lot of black conservatives who have talked about this in the 50s and 60s who were writing about how as white Democrats became white Republicans, they were writing in black publications about how, like, these black Republicans in Mississippi, these are the people who are, you know, we need to vote them out. We need to figure out what to do. We need to figure out how to talk to them or how to deal with this politically because they their interpretation of state power is not conducive to us being able to vote right. or exist. And so I think that that was something, it's an ongoing problem, and it's one where 
I don't want to get into a like, what about the left? Because I think that my answer is like, yeah, there's racism on the left, too. I don't understand why that would be, ah, this brilliant Trump card that racism exists everywhere. I'm like, yes, congratulations. Mm. Welcome. You did it. You got it. So I think like that was I just wanted to talk about this because I think it's a it's a concern for the political movement, but it's also a concern for the ideological promise of conservatism. Because there's nothing about conservatism that requires racism. You know, there's nothing That's about right. like, you know, Russell Kirk, there's no, I, I've read Kirk, I've read, you know, a lot of kind of the formative pieces of conservatism, and none of it is race-based. Mm-hmm. I, I could almost see an argument with regard to, and I've heard this before, about like the Civil Rights Act and you know, the of and private businesses and discrimination. And I'm like, maybe there's some sort of argument here, but it, it it's not required. And so I think that this is, you know, I wanted to have these conversations because I think it matters and I think it's important for not just the political experience of conservatism, but the ideological experience of it as well. Yeah, so... Um... There's a lot going on there, and I agree with a lot of it. I do think that the you know we're we're recording this after a sort of second wave. I mean, it depends where you start the clock, right? But it, the most recent wave of racist or arguably racist tweets from Donald Trump, these about uh, Elijah Cummings mm-hmm. and Baltimore and all of that, and the twenty-three dimensional chess argument kind of falls apart when you realize that he was watching Fox and Friends. Right. And three minutes later, off the cuff, he decided, I'm going to write this thing. I personally think that he didn't know. I find, and I make no effort to try, but I find the it's impossible to defend Trump against the charge of racism. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I, since I have no emotional investment in the guy whatsoever, I don't feel any nece- need to try. But... This idea that he is doing this out of some grand theory of the electorate. Oh, no, I don't think that there's a grand theory. I think, you know, I actually um, I wrote a piece for National Review in 2017 about the idea of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. And my argument then, as largely now, is that Trumpism is not a real thing. It's just a lot of people projected onto Trump whatever they wanted. I think it's a psychological phenomenon. But it's not a political thing. Yeah, you could see a dove if you wanted to see a dove. You could see a hawk if you wanted to see a hawk. But... You know, and I've said again and again that I think Trump's racism is the kind of racism where he assumed that members of the Congressional Black Caucus and Ben Carson had already met because, of course, they would. This is the racism of even today, just talking about how the African-American community is calling the White House. And to which I was like, (laughs) we did? Did we? Who called? Alan Keyes, get off the phone. (laughs) But, like, I think that the idea – you something I, I, I want to make very clear that I think is really complicated is, you know, you hear a lot of people talking like, well, I don't know if he's racist because I can't see into his heart. But I think one racism appears in actions and policies and words, but also racism, as I make a point in the piece, has gradations like the racism of middle class white liberal suburban parents who are very interested in diversity, except where it comes to where their kids have to go to school. Mm -hmm. That's racism. Sure. And there, it's not all ghosts of Mississippi. Right. And I think that... And it's not... Well, I, I, yeah. I, just to take yeah. that, that point, I, I, I agree with you. There's racism involved, or at least there's, there's, a, there's a racist impact to the decisions that flow from people making those kinds of decisions. At the same time, 
the parent who just simply wants to send their kid to the best school that they can, re, which in, in very, which often is going to be actually a class thing rather than a race thing, right? Because the the black kids of upper middle class or or upper class people who go to private schools around D.C. do not bother any of the. I mean, I send my kid to a private school in D.C. There are a lot of. It's a pretty diverse school, but it's diverse by by skin color. It's right. not diverse by class per se. Right. And so the parents that you're referring to, they can be called racist because they don't want to send their kid to a bad school in, quote unquote, the inner city that happens to be full of non-whites, but they wouldn't have the exact same. But And you can call that racist. But is it is it a racist intent to it? I think that, again, when we start getting into intent, mm-hmm. like, I'm, you know, this when we're talking about race, I think it's important to recognize that we are not in the middle of like a legal proceeding in which sure. intent matters. When If we were trying to determine whether or not someone was guilty of murder, that's when we'd have to have a conversation about, like, did they intend to do it? If they didn't intend to do it, then perhaps it's manslaughter. This is not that. I think that there are ways in which, you know, and you see this... And I'm aware this is I'm talking to conservatives, and I'm aware the idea of disparate impact has mm-hmm. a very different connotation for conservatives than it does for I think a lot of folks on the left. The idea that you know if you have a policy and that policy just so happens to mean that like let's you know no African Americans are permitted to do a thing. Mm-hmm. But the policy does not technically say that no African Americans can do the thing. It just happens to make it so that somehow it's never happened. And I think that that is also worthwhile of mention. And I think it's pretty clear in certain senses that I think where conservatives are, when we're having, I, I know this is a tangential argument, but I think that people could see disparate impact when we're talking about like social media and how platforms are moderated, mm-hmm. where if the moderation technique does not have any anti-conservative animus in it, but all the people who happen to be kicked off the website or whatever all happen to be conservative. One could make the argument like that's that's disparate impact. That's mm-hmm. the idea that people are being impacted differently than other people. And in general, in that specific case, we would not be like, well, it's time for those conservatives to like pull their pants up and stop listening to rap music. And this kind of thing just wouldn't happen anymore. So I think it's worth thinking about how racism shows up in a lot of different ways. Stop it for a second uh, and slow it down. I agree disparate impact is a thing. Sometimes disparate impact is a is a bad societal outcome. Sometimes it's just simply stuff that happens. But you say that intent doesn't matter. And I know you sort of are sort of you've talked about this on Twitter and you talk about it on the piece and you talk about it elsewhere about how you're somewhat you seem to be intrigued, frustrated, intrigued by this thing that conservatives say that they're gonna get called racist no matter what, right? The Lindsey right. Graham tweet and all the rest. Now I, I think that one of the things take you personally out of it that the left truly does not appreciate as a gross generalization is the degree to which when you're charging people with racism, the way a conservative hears it is that they're not hearing you know, abstractions about disparate impact. They're hearing you intended with malice aforethought to discriminate against black people or Asian people or whoever right. it is. And so while I completely get your, your 
larger point about disparate impact and all the rest, the way the left talks about conservatives being racist is about them being bad people and about their intent. And even if I'm not 100% right on that, I, I feel like I'm pretty close to 100% right on that, that is the way it is heard by a lot of conservatives. I can just tell you, one of the reasons why Andrew Breitbart became Andrew Breitbart is he was so offended by being called a racist all the time. And, you know, you can think that's weird, but... I mean, it, it doesn't really, you know, lend oneself to a high-minded view of personal responsibility. Because I, so? I think that, I mean, the idea that one would be pushed further into... I mean, I, I, and you hear this a lot, because I write, I write predominantly about conservatism, the GOP, mm -hmm. the right, and white nationalism. And I'm making extremely helpful hand gestures that do not show up in a <laughs> right. podcast. I do this all the time. You don't keep like, them in all the same bucket. Yeah, yeah I do not keep them in right. the same bucket. Like, I do not think that the conservatism, like Matthew Continetti is not the, of the Washington Free Beacon, is not the conservatism or even in the same ideological ballpark as Jared Taylor and the people right. at American Renaissance. And I think that that keeps separated. But I hear that from people in certain, like, very far white nationalist circles, this idea of, like, well, I, I voted for Obama, but then people said I was a racist. And then all of a sudden I turned up at Charlottesville. And I'm, I know that's not what you're saying. Yeah, but I think – but I do think that there is so. this idea that to double down, that is something that is nonsensical to me. The idea that, you know, well – like, for example – I know when I have said things in the past that people um, have like been like, I think that's kind of racist. My first thought is not, how dare you? My first thought was like, oh, whoa, I did not at all mean that. And mm -hmm. then I tried to not do the thing mm -hmm. again. And I'm aware that for some people, this is a very much like, how dare you rest restrict my free speech? But we do that all the time. I, I, Whenever we're having these conversations, I think it's helpful. If someone gets married and they have a different surname and they say, oh, I'm actually this now, people are not like, how dare you restrict my right to mm -hmm. call you by your, your maiden name? Sure. And so I think that for me... Personally, I think obviously the idea of race and racism is very personal to me, but I think the experiences I've had in which I have been the person who was racist mm -hmm. or said something that was racist, because, you know, if you say something, I could be as cleansed white as you want, but I've if I say something, I still said it. My reaction has always been, okay, how can I get this right the next time? And I think that that is something where I, and I, I mean this genuinely, I do not understand the doubling down. Okay. I do not understand the idea that, like, if you, if someone says, like, whoa, this thing you did on Sh to Shirley Sherrod, that has a lot of racist implications. The mm -hmm. idea that that would be something where, like... It's time to go full steam ahead towards racism town. Yeah, well, I, first of all, I mean, I, 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 I think you... And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're thinking from my point about Breitbart that yeah. he went further racist. No, no, no. That, yeah, okay. I'm just I'm just making the point that yeah. like the idea of I agree with like yeah. so like if we're going to talk about the the V Dare and American Renaissance people who I've been been fighting with for 20 plus years and who when I came to National Review the guy the Jack Wads at V Dare for the listeners who don't know V Dare is named after Virginia Dare the first white child born in America is They have so many thoughtful viewpoints they do. on they so do. many thought provoking issues And they uh they used to only refer to for years 
what only for National Review is Goldberg's Review. Yes. And they put a lot of stink on the Goldberg, right? So their arguments I don't really care about. And I agree with you. I think we could probably agree on a huge amount. But let me sort of where I think you're making a bit of a category error, or at least it feels like it to me, is I agree with you entirely that when I accidentally say something or I ignorantly say something that is offensive to somebody and they correct me and they point out that it's offensive, I try to process it and if if I think they're right and that it is, I correct my actions, right? And I've I've made this argument to conservative college kids for decades now about how, look, there's a lot of terrible stuff in political correctness, but some part of it is actually just an attempt to come up with new manners for a more diverse society. And part of being a conservative is understanding that manners are important. And one of the first things about manners is if somebody wants to be called X, you call them X. And, you know, in the 1960s when it became uh, – in the 70s when, when Negro went out of fashion, right? I mean, there's Negro is just a label. It's a it, – there's nothing inherent to it that says it has to be an offensive term. But African-Americans have decided it's an offensive term. They didn't want to be called it anymore. As a matter of just good manners, you go with the label that people want to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got all sorts of issues with some of the transgender stuff. But the actual transgender people I talk to, I treat them with respect because th- those are good manners. You are the moral authority of yourself and all the rest. The problem is extrapolating from your personal experience, where I think you're absolutely right, to the grand world of politics. And when you have whether it's Joe Biden telling black audiences that Republicans want to put them all back in chains. I've said before is uh-huh. one of the silliest things ever uttered. Yeah, no, it's, it's right, right. Like, I feel like Joe Biden is kind of like if you've got like I, I used to write about college football and I like putting everything in college football terms. It's helpful. But he's kind of like if you've got like the head coach and then you've got like the crazy assistant coach yeah, who yeah. just says things and you're kind of like, well, this is why you're the running backs coach. Right. And I'm the head coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, look, I mean, there's yeah. always a there's always a non-trivial chance that Joe Biden's going to start shouting, get these squirrels off of me. Right? right. Okay. But you have John Lewis, who I am perfectly happy to concede, has an incredibly morally important story about what he did in the civil rights era. But he has been trading off of that to a certain extent, particularly around election time, saying things like, you know, the that he does it cleverly. But in 2012, I think it was, he talks about how he's not going to go back to the days where... We have Jim Crow or, or slavery. That's the insinuation. And he makes it into this Manichaean thing where that side wants that and we are the only people who don't want that. And I think that the way the media covers this stuff, the way Democrats, prominent Democrats, prominent liberal intellectuals talk about this stuff, one of the things they do is they change the terms of political correctness or they change the terms of the language in ways to make conservatives feel or appear to be bigots with a broad brush and unfairly. And the there's a remarkable amount of cynicism that is involved in a lot of that. And so on a personal level, when you're talking about how you respond to a person who points out something that you said, that's one thing. When you're talking about party organizations, institutional, major institutions, major, major media organizations, it has more to do with marketing than it has to do with this sort of interpersonal stuff. And I think conservatives are overly sen- – or were overly sensitive to it and now they've gone friggin' numb to it or a lot – I shouldn't say conservatives. A lot of people on the right. That's another one of these distinctions that is being lost. Is there a difference between being right-wing and being conservative? Right. And uh, just as there's a different – there used to be a difference between left-wing and being a liberal. But do you – so do you not think that 
in all honesty, that conservatives have anything to complain about, about, um, or let's put it less leadingly, what do you think are the actual merits of conservative complaints about being painted as racists? I mean, I think it's challenging because I think that historically there has been a tendency on the right. For example, when Pat Buchanan spoke at the Republican National Convention in 1992 Mm -hmm. and people were like, that's a presidential person candidate right there and he should jump in. And if you go back and watch that speech, it's. It's creepy. It's real creepy yeah, yeah, yeah. and kind of insane. Mm-hmm. And I think that there has been, you know, I always make this guardrails point on Twitter. And I think that one of the challenges of the conservative movement, and I will circle back to your actual question, is that there has been a tendency for political reasons to kind of look past racism within the conservative movement. And I don't mean, you know, again, movement conservatism and conservatism are two separate sure, things. Sure, sure, sure. And so, for example, you see that with, like, Steve King or something Mm. like that, who literally had to say magical words, white nationalists, for people to be like, okay, that's enough. Mm -hmm. But for 20 years, spent as much time dancing trippingly through the daisies of racism as you possibly can, endorsing a white nationalist for mayor of a city in another country. And you see Mm -hmm. that again and again. And so I think that the, the point is not that, Every time Democrats have said Republicans did something racist, they were correct that, you know, they had some unique and, you know, I think that that's something I want to make clear that, you know, it's not as if Democrats have always been shining in glory on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that again and again. I think that that's that's one of the things that's been kind of driving me nuts about this 2020 primaries. People are like, oh, well, this wasn't a big issue in the 70s. And I'm like, well, a lot of things weren't a big issue in the right. 70s. It turns out that maybe we could have thought about this differently, but a lot of people were a little busy. It was 1975. Things were happening. But I think the guardrails against racism within the Republican Party have diminished and to some extent disappeared. There is a I was I was going to reference an onion piece, but I've decided against it because it's very crude and this is a classy audience. Um <laughs> but there's always this conversation of like, why are all these racists in the Republican Party or something like that? And mm. that's not to say that the Republican that Democrat there are no racist Democrats is to say that there is a specific vulnerability here. Mm -hmm. And it is to say that, you know, when you have, when the thing that could possibly get you kind of keel hauled from the Republican Party is not being racist, but, you know, the, but, you know, opposing some sort of trade policy or when, you know, when Justin Amash, when he was a Republican, you know, when he was standing up against reauthorization of uh, Defense Act, when you know Devin Nunez said he was Al Qaeda's best friend in mm-hmm. Congress, where you know that is something that for a lot of Republicans was like you have to, you can't do that, you have to do this. But then we see time and time and time again how many how racism does not have that same disqualifying nature. And so, you know, I would say... Well, can you give me some examples about... I mean, look, I, Steve King, right. plead guilty. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy to concede when Steve King is a bad dude who says bad things and believes bad things and thinks that he 
sees no problem with finding common cause with friggin' Austrian. You know, you but know. I think that it's bigger than Steve King. I, I agree, want, but I so want I'm ex- asking. I want to explain why. So I'm, uh, but I, I, I want you know, I, I think I agree with part of your criticism, but I can tell you there are going to be a lot of conservatives who are listening to this, and they'll be saying, "Like what?" or "Such as?" I mean, what are the what are the 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 because, like, I don't want to get into a big thing in the weeds about Robert Bork, but I thought one of the major false notes in your thing was this idea that Robert Bork was the who I knew personally pretty well. Never heard him say a racist thing in his in my life. And yes, I, I'm a, I know that you objected to me linking to that piece yeah. in the Nation. And um, uh, and I just don't. I, I I think what they tried to do to what they tried to do to Bork. I was in college at the time. Had profound implications on American politics because an enormous number of conservatives felt how uh, they believed how unfair it was. And you have these sort of galvanizing moments where the left seeks out to destroy people. It's like those, you know, this is why I think the personal anecdote about your interpersonal relations doesn't really apply at the mass level. There was those great moments where they had the signs pre-made for uh, a Bush or Trump Supreme Court nominee, and they, whatever name came up, they were going to fill in hates women or whatever, but they pre-printed these things. There is a certain cottage industry, and I'm not saying it doesn't exist on the right too, but I'm t- we're talking about how the right reacts to mm-hmm. the way the left treats these things. There is this sense that charging racism or sexism or whatever is just the go-to move more often than warranted. And you're saying that, which I think it may be right, that conservatives have tolerated racism and sexism or racism in in all sorts of ways until it becomes overt. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, geez, we can't we have to deal with it. But people are going to want some examples about what you think are actual instances of, of, of the right tolerating racism too long. I mean, I can think of some. Right. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I want to get. I think at a certain point, this turns into like a weird like tit for tat kind of thing. Uh-huh. But I want to kind of get above that to make the point yeah, I, I was trying to make. That. Yeah. So one example would be noted failure Corey Stewart. Mm-hmm. And if for anyone who might not remember, uh, Corey Stewart ran, uh, he ran for office many times, but he ran for uh, United States Senate out of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, he beat uh, Nick Freitas in the GOP primary. Freitas, definitely more libertarian leading candidate. Stewart, not. And a lot of people saw Stewart as kind of this effort to take Trumpism down, you know, send Trumpism down to the people, mm-hmm. if I can make a Maoist joke here. Um, and, you know, that you saw that a couple of times, like, okay, you know, Trump's done this thing, and we think we know what his appeal was, which, I mean, again, that's kind of part of my argument. We think we know what his appeal was, and his appeal was clown show racism. Mm-hmm. And so you saw Stewart, who I think it's worth noting, is an incredibly wealthy person mm-hmm. who lives in a very, I believe his home had something like 15 rooms and like mm-hmm. this beautiful art collection. But you see Stewart start really going with like, you know, going to Confederate veterans events. Again, this is someone who's from Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he starts talking about like carpetbaggers yeah. and talking about how- Our heritage. Our heritage. And like, oh, you know, this is like taking down Confederate memorials. They're just like ISIS or something like that. And I was like- People talk about like, oh, you know, the the left panders to black voters. I'm like, I have never in my life seen pandering to an audience that is not that big, especially knowing Virginia. Like yeah. Virginia Republicans 
I think that there's this idea people have occasionally where you get in, like they don't understand what Virginia actually is. Like Northern Virginia is super left leaning. Oh sure. And the state itself is purple, purple ish, and even with some red pockets. Right. But even those red pockets are in general like not exactly Confederacy fetishes. Sure. You know they're conservatives like people, and so I think that that was something I found particularly interesting because that was Stewart very cynically making the argument because he had said previously, you know, he'd got, done a lot. Um, he'd or said he did a lot on improving race relations after 2012 because, you know, he thought it was very important to work with um, Hispanic residents and do all of these, do all of these things. And then suddenly he just starts being like, I'm super into Confederacy now. And I'm really, you know, we, sh- there was nothing to apologize for after Charlottesville just the double downs of all double downs. And this idea, what, what I wanted to get at is not necessarily, I think that one of the points I want to make again and again is that conservative policy does not require racism. If no, you want to make, yeah, sure. you want to make an argument about lowering taxes to increase take home pay for individuals so that they can, you know, take Put more food on the table. If you want to make an argument about uh, changing licensing reform and make because you see that a lot with making the argument about like, you know, if you are a hair braider, you shouldn't need to go to Mm -hmm. do all this crazy stuff or get fined. Fine. That is a race neutral. Those are race neutral arguments. Mm -hmm. But what you saw from the Stewart campaign and you see this, you know, with people kind of trying to make this pitch is this idea is that this is what conservatives are looking for. Conservatives will not listen to me if I am making a pitch for the, the values of limited government. You know, I would think if I were a conservative politician, I would run like I'm Calvin Coolidge. They'd be like, you will never hear from me. You will never see me. I will never say anything. I will do, you know, I will do three things and I will leave office. I... But you're not seeing, you know, you're, you're seeing people who are making this argument that like, you know, and you even see this with with candidates who are willing to kind of pal around. You know, you see it. You saw it in Florida with um, Proud Boys type things. This sure. idea of like not necessarily because I am certain that we're going to get to a point in like 2026 in which you get a lot of tell all books about how I had no idea, blah, 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 blah. But this idea cynicism of no, uh... embracing these specific racist tropes. But doing so with the express purpose of thinking that that's what voters are looking for, that like what Virginians really want is some dude to claim that he's basically the second nephew of Robert E. Lee. That, I think, is what gets to me. I, well, I, I, I agree with that. But he lost. Right. Paul Nealon lost. And I think that and almost all the sort of Trump mini-me's lost um, that Bannon and those guys were pushing – um, it turns out that a big part of the Bannon, Bannonite project of igniting this sort of white nationalist alt-right thing has been a failure. Uh, the fact that it was as, the right was as susceptible to it, at least for a little while, I think is a huge black mark on the right. But, you know, this is a – here's my counter theory about what's going on. Donald Trump, who spent most of his life not as a Republican – honestly believe that Republicans are racists. And there are stories I can't attribute to who, but I've heard from many credible sources uh, who were present at the time, like when Trump uh, was had to dis- – people want him to disavow David Duke. Um, Trump 
didn't want to do it, not because he agreed with David Duke, but he was convinced that David Duke brought him a lot of voters because he didn't know jack about the Republican Party. Um, that's, that's, that is I, – I, I want there, – there needs to be like a term. I perhaps I, – you know, I took German for like five years, but I don't remember if there is a term for things that are both very sad and very funny. Yeah. And I feel like that's what that is. Um, the idea that David Duke in the year of our Lord sure. 2016, 2017 would be like a major mover and shaker outside of like I, – I have no idea. No, exactly. exactly. Yeah. But um, I mean I'll just give you a great example. It's not quite on race but it's the same principle. Go back and look at the video of Donald Trump at, his, at the 2016 convention where he has this line in there. It was at, referring to the Pulse nightclub shooting in, mm-hmm. in Orlando where he says, Only weeks ago, in Orlando, Florida, 49 wonderful Americans were savagely murdered by an Islamic terrorist. This time, the terrorist targeted LGBTQ community. No good. And we're going to stop it. As your president... I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. And the crowd applauds. Right. And Donald Trump is visibly taken aback. Right. And he says, I can't. And it goes off script. And I have to say, as a Republican, it is so nice to hear you cheering for what I just said. Thank you. As if this was a tenant of conservatism or the Republican Party that we were okay with Islamic terrorists <laughs> murdering scores of gay people on American soil. Right. That's his, that was his assumption about what the GOP is. And the problem, and so Corey Stewart, bad guy. Paul Nealon, bad guy. Lots of bad guys out there. But I, to me, they are examples not of the inherent racism of the traditional GOP or the conservative movement or conservatives generally, they're examples of sort of classic beer hall putsch opportunists who think they have a theory about where the country is going and they want to get out ahead of the parade. And they turned out their theory was wrong. Right. You know, none of these people actually won office or even won their – and the handful – Maybe a handful won the primaries, but I don't think any did of the real alt-righty yeah. guys. And so this is not an example to me of the racism of the GOP. It is an example about how these racists are trying to do this hostile takeover of it and exploit Trump to do it. And it hasn't worked out so well so far. So I think that that in a weird way kind of gets to my point, uh-huh. which was about instrumentalized racism and the assumption, again, that this is what voters want. Now, whether or not voters do want that, because understandably people looked at Tim Kaine versus Corey Stewart and were like, fine, Tim Kaine, right. um, or didn't vote. Because I think that that's the thing that you saw. Um, one of the uh, side note, one of the interesting things about Roy Moore was the number of pe- you know people talked about like black women turning out because black women will vote in any condition. We are a proud and noble group. But, you know, the number of GOP people who just were like, absolutely not. Yeah. I will not do this. But it is, to me, it is very interesting that I, I, I bring this up all the time, but like the GOP autopsy of after 2012, which was like, we need to make inroads at in minority communities. 
And then Trump was like, or mm -hmm. we don't do that at all. Mm -hmm. I run against someone who's extremely unpopular and I say nonsensical things and I get on television a lot. And here we are now. But I think the use of you know, the cynical use of racism and the assumption, again, that that's what conservative voters want. I think that was something I was trying to get at. The idea but that, how does that prove since it's not I, I still don't think you, you've made the case that it is what Republican voters want. But even if it turns out that in some extent it is, how does that prove the left was right about the right? I think that the my understanding and how I wanted to parse this out is that if you are saying like for years, people on the left have been saying like the right has a racism problem. The right has a racism problem. The right has a racism problem. Now, and I, I'm aware, you know, we talked about this a little mm -hmm. bit. The idea and I get the argument, but like that was a politically cynical calculation mm -hmm. to say that. But again, it could also have just been true. You can something or, or can be. It could have been somewhat true, right? Think, Without it being entirely true. I think that the right having a racism problem and the left using race in a way that is cynical and for political purposes, those two things can be true at the same time, and they can actually feed and, off of each other. And I think what we're seeing, and I also think that this occasionally gets into like a moral argument about racism. And or it's just a pure politics argument about racism. And I, I exist in a world in which one can be in politics and have moral decisions to make at the same time. Mm -hmm. We contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that was something that I thought was a particular issue for movement conservatism. Mm -hmm. The idea that, one, the cynical use of, of racism – of instrumentalized racism to the idea that because it works politically, it's a good idea, mm -hmm. which is why it's been interesting to see all the like the folks, you know, you're starting to see a little bit of people trying to take on the purportedly populist project of Trump, Senator Josh Hawley and a couple of people, you know, Mike Lee and a couple other folks. But it's interesting to me that the first people were like, you know what people liked about Trump and immediately just went to racism. You know, it mm. wasn't the health care for everyone. It wasn't the we're going to stop getting into unnecessary wars. It was like, no, no, no. We're going to really focus in on this racism thing. And so I think that I – the use of – race and racism as a cudgel and now it's to the extent with within movement conservatism and i i am working on a project about you know I, i'm really interested in african americans and conservatism mm -hmm. and you know, the, you know as people routinely bring up and i think it's a worthwhile fact you know all of the first african americans in congress were all republicans because mm -hmm. of course they were sure and if you exist in the world and are a student of actual history, you know that like there there are reasons for that, and there's been a reasons for why that's changed since then. But I think it is a deep concern to me as someone who thinks and values conservatism on a philosophical level that conservatism on a political level is so prone to one this idea that racism in, like instrumentalized racism is a good idea because you can use it while claiming you're not racist you know making this elaborate point about how this is what voters want even when it's not mm -hmm. the and i think too 
the notion that racism is somehow this, you know, uh, it's the language of the forgotten man or mm-hmm. something that like, you know, back home, this is how we talk or something like that, where one, that that's not generally true. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know, for a lot, it's it's been funny seeing this coming from people. I'm like, back home, you're from like San Francisco. Yeah. Like, I'm aware the Inland Empire is, you know, has its own issues, but you're very far away from that. And so I think that that's been my concern. And yeah, I think I, that I, the idea, I mean, again, I want in a, in, a, in, a, in a world of my own making, this would be something at which the use of instrumentalized racism would be itself disqualifying, whether it's coming from the right or whether it's coming from the left. But when we keep being in this weird defensive crouch where we're just in this eternal no man's land in which like, well, I would be, you know, saying things like, well, you know, well, I'd be accused of being a racist anyway. So I'm like, no, that that's not you have. I think that people in politics should have I'm a, I have a lot of things where things that I think that people in politics should do that I'm aware no one will ever do. But I think one of those things is that there are arguments that are morally persuasive that don't require racism, and everyone should use those ones. Um, I, 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 so I agree with that. Um, I think, though, that... You know, did, you re- did you read the book, which I did not, because I thought it was a smear job, uh, Democracy in Chains? I own it, but I have uh-huh. not read it. So the, the gist of the argument, broad brushstrokes, is that libertarianism was always just a racist con. Right. And... Uh, having spent an enormous amount of time over the last 20 years with a lot of libertarians, they take deep and abiding offense right. at things like that. And the argument of places like the Cato Institute and Reason Magazine, we're not talking about the Lou Rockwell crowd, which it was right. racist. Yes, you know, yes, right. yes. Um, we're talking about, you know, Mercatus and these right. kinds of people. people like Russ Roberts, right? These are not – these are people who I, I can – just tell you from having known these people and talked to these people, these people are profoundly offended by racism. Right. They're profoundly offended by bigotry. And if the argument is is that because there are disparate impacts or there's income inequality that is produced from a free, small government society, that therefore they're racists, that is an example to me of saying, well, they're going to call me racist no matter what. I'm still going to push for what I consider to be non-racist policies. Right. And there are an enormous number of examples like that of of intentionally self-conceived race-neutral policies that may or may not have a disparate impact based upon race or gender or whatever that are then not only called racist or sexist in, in effect, which is one argument, but that there's an intentionality of it. And you can't, I mean, I'm just going to say, you can't live in a society where we talk about racism as the great, one of the great evils, social evils in life, and then say, well, conservatives are getting too worked up when they get called racist. But I think the thing is, I think that there is a way to have this conversation that acknowledges that racism is evil. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's also there's also a lot less of it today than at any time. There in is, American there history. is, and I think that that's you. Know, there's a Chris Rock comedy special in which he talks a little bit about how you know it's not that African Americans improved from like 
slavery until now. It's that we are dealing with like the greatest class of white people ever created in America. <laughs> you know, like finally. Uh, but I think that it's worth saying that we, we've. I'm aware that there's a lot of concern, like oh, you know, saying something as racist as this death now, which. Now, no, it's not, apparently. Um, but also, it, it the, is in college campuses and lots of corporate America. It is on places like Twitter. If you have one bad tweet, you can see yourself. But that, you know, you know. That's not the, the, the thrust of human existence. And I think that it's worth noting, in, again, I'm sure I'm going to get many emails about how, well, this isn't how it works in the real world. But you know, saying something is racist is a descriptor. And I'm aware that for many people, it's like this terrible insult because then you get the people who are like i'm how dare you say that that's very offensive where like the original racism is like over here getting Mm -hmm. ignored of like no that was the thing that was bad but i think and i understand you know i i've spent a great deal of time in my life with libertarians i think i have a lot of libertarian leanings i always joke about how there's just a very small angry libertarian who lives within me and generally when it has to do something with like criminal justice reform or gun policy, the angry libertarian in me is unleashed. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that saying that a movement has a racism problem, which I think I could say pretty honestly about virtually every social movement in this country, that is not, I don't mean that as this searing indictment of every libertarian that you know. Or, you know, when I talk about, I've talked about before, um, the weirdo racism that I've in, that I experienced on a college campus, which was I thought more telling about you know where people who I went to school with were coming from, where people would say things like, "Well, you know why the black kids are here? They're here for sports," and they'd say this to me, mm. and I'd be like, "I'm I'm sorry, what now? I'm athletic, but in sure. kind of that like weird amorphous athleticism where you can't actually do anything." Right, right. <laughs> but like the I, I think that racism takes a lot of different forms and it appears in a lot of different movements where it, I mean, where ideally it wouldn't appear at all. And I think we've seen that, you know, you see that a little bit on the left where there is this assumption and it drives me absolutely out of my mind insane. This assumption that somehow we need Louis Farrakhan because he can say things to black audiences and like, but if we're close to him, it'll appear as if we're speaking to black audiences. And I'm like, which black audiences? Because the black audiences that hate gay people and believe that Elijah Muhammad is living in a spaceship that circulates right. the planet and that Jews made me gay? Yeah. I don't really, like, those are black audiences. Like, we're not all friends. You yeah. know, it turns out at our annual black community meeting, we do not all get together. <laughs> and, you know, you, you don't need to have a separate room for Louis Farrakhan. Right. But I think that... As a side note, just, just I guess it drives me crazy. I loved Autobiography of Malcolm X. Read it, like, three times in high school. Yeah. And I got became briefly fascinated by Nation of Islam theology, and, mm-hmm. and it is so. That this was I was in high school in the nineteen eighties. It has been thirty odd years, give or take. Right. Mm-hmm. Every time I ever read up about Nation of Islam theology, it always says that that white people were invented in a lab six thousand mm-hmm. six hundred sixty six years ago. Mm-hmm. The odometer never flips. Nope. <laughs> and, nope. You know, which is as much creationism as Earth was, you know, created five or five thousand years ago, and yep. all that kind of stuff. And but this is what I was getting at. In my response to your thing is that there, I think there are these kinds of blind spots on both sides, where because of this thing that Jonathan Tooby calls the coalition instinct, we make allowances for the weirdness on our own side, 
while we have a hyper perception of the of the inconsistencies on the other side. Right. And I think that is, you know, you can call it polarization, you can call it tribalism or whatever, but I think that is one of the core problems defining our age. And so I'm just because we got to wrap up, but I yeah. just, but the the part that vexed me and vexes me about I don't I, mean, I don't want to make it about you, but my alternative theory about how we are in the why we can't have nice things is that um, for an enormous number of people, and I mentioned this on the Tim Alberta podcast recently, right. um, that for an enormous number of people, things like the Tea Party were seen as like this authentic, sort of principled, right. patriotic, not necessarily nationalistic thing, right? Because patriotism is about ideas and creeds and all the rest. And it was lots of declaration reading and, and uh, constitution and all that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. this list of principles. And it was immediately not just about the fringe people, and there were obviously racists who were at the fringe of all that stuff. It was seen soup to nuts in toto as a racist phenomenon. And there were a large number of people who responded to this kind of thing saying, look, we have the left now no longer, you know, there are lots of people who now argue that Martin Luther King's credo of uh, judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That, that colorblindness now is a racist concept for a lot of people on the campus left. And there are a lot of people who I think on the right lost their minds and said, okay, if they have identity politics, we're going to have identity politics too. And we're going to have identity politics for white people. And uh, we recently had on the show, it hasn't aired yet, Lyman Stone, who who's a demonist and demographer, is pointing out that there's there, the one quote-unquote ethnic group on census data that – is really expanding is people who are defining themselves as white people, mm-hmm. which is a newish thing. I'm not talking about, you know, white Anglo-Saxon right. Protestants, but now that whiteness is an ethnicity is a newish thing. I right. gr- Growing up, again, I'm a pseudo-intellectual demi-Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but it never occurred to me to talk about myself right. as, a, well, as a white person, right? And I understand that black people have a specific history and I also think, though, that historically in the United States, we have thought of, um, for instance, in, even in terms of like demographic questions you get asked, if when I do the census or any uh, like a lot of demographic tests, mm-hmm. I will answer a host of questions that you will not have to answer. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that is a good thing or a bad thing, that is up to people who are not me. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it is interesting that you said that people responding to, ah, the identity politics of the left will have identity politics of the right, where I would say like, there have been white identity politics for the entire time this country has existed. I, I once uh, there, said, have been, uh, there, there have been identity politics groups among white people. I don't think that in America, I mean – from the vantage point of African Americans, I think you can absolutely say there was a white identity politics for the entire time of this country. I don't think that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the 19th century and the 20th century saw Poles and, oh, no. No, and they did not. Italians they're, as they're, part of their white identity group. Right, which I think is what really interesting about this. I, you know, um, One of my random favorite things about weirdo, alt-right, pagan racist Twitter is this idea of this like, ah, Europe – Mm-hmm. Like this glorious white homeland where everyone looks Finnish, right. which I was just like, then what was the Thirty Years' War about? What was the Hundred Years' right. War about? What was like all of European history? Have you history been to been? Italy? I'm like, <laughs> yo, know, like they're 
no, there has been no more storied activity in European history is white people getting real upset at other white people yeah. about stuff and going to war. Right. But I think the you know, when we're talking about the Tea Party, for example, or just kind of some of these movements, I think it's important to note that the tea, the beginnings of the Tea Party. And I wrote about this, and I think that there have been a couple arguments because I think Ron Paul used to occasionally be like, ah, I helped to launch mm-hmm. the Tea Party in the 80s or something like that. You see this happening after the election of the first black president, and you're not seeing the same concerns about, you know, same, I think, very legitimate concerns about the size of government, about debt, about bailouts. You're not seeing that before November 2008. And so I think that for a lot of people, it became kind of like first black president, lots of protests, lots of protests carrying like don't tread on me flags. Like I, I understand how that calculus was made. And I think it's in a lot of ways kind of telling that a lot of you, – I, I know you talked about this with mm-hmm. Tim Alberta. That was a really interesting episode because I think he also brought up one point I love, which is that like conservatives love absolutely nothing more than a black Republican, mm-hmm. nothing more in the history of time. But – I do. Since you're a student of this stuff, um, you might want to go back. Peter Varek, who was a weird conservative, there was a time where he was a competitor with Buckley for like the leader mm-hmm. of intellectual conservatives, Pulitzer Prize winning poet. Who knew that there's a poetry prize? Mm-hmm. And, but he had this concept called trans tolerance, which his argument was as as political coalitions become more intensely ideological, prior forms of discrimination, whether you know of any kind recede into the background. And so even in the 1950s, anti-communists, who otherwise you might think have a problem with yeah. black guys, loved black anti-communists. Oh, yeah. And put them first and front and center and all Absolutely. Words, you know. that. Absolutely. Um, interestingly, uh, Jackie Robinson was brought in to uh, testify against the House Committee on, on American Activities, essentially to testify against Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. And Jackie Robinson was like... Like, he was like, I'll go. But then he had this long thing of, like, you know, like, if he he pretty much made the argument that Paul Robeson's response to racism was to embrace communism and that that is something that could happen to anyone and he mm-hmm. was not going to get really that upset about it. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's interesting and very telling to me how much the Tea Party has just transitioned into, like, we love Trump more mm-hmm. than anyone could ever love Trump. And I think that there is something... You know, I don't know if it's it's really hard for me to look. I remember kind of the rise of the Tea Party, and I remember how the Tea Party was parsed out. And I think you made the point that the Tea Party also got overwhelmed with grifters. Oh yeah, sure. And I think a lot of those grifters again made the same assumption as you argue mm-hmm. Trump did, which is they're not actually in this to reduce deficit spending. Mm-hmm. They're actually in this because they're very upset about this black guy being president. And so I think that was something that I, you know, because I've talked to people who were on the ground on the first Tea Parties, um, Tea Party events, the people who were kind of, at, you know, started getting activated in 2009. And you talk to them and like, this was a, we were very worried about the size of government, by what had happened by the recession and how much government had propped up these companies in a lot of ways to screw over everybody. But the people who came in and tried to skim off the top, and you saw that for political figures, and you're mm-hmm. even seeing now all these scammy packs that you're still seeing information on, they were like, aha, 
it's not about that. It's about race. Yes. And I think that was something that I found really interesting. I am I am happy to concede that I didn't appreciate how much the race thing with Obama, how much more of a role it played than I thought at the time. <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because it kind of reminds me. I, I, when I talked to Bill Crystal a couple of huh. years ago, he was like, you know, I asked, what is something you didn't expect? Um, and he was like, well, I just didn't know what a big deal race was. And it kind of reminds me, um, have you ever seen Shawshank Redemption? Sure. Um, do you remember the sisters who uh, abused yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our hero? And there's this line that Morgan Freeman says, like, I do believe those were the toughest times for Andy. Like, for, just, <laughs> yes, yes. The toughest time was when he was being sexually assaulted by yeah. crazy people for right. two years. And so it, it's, I think that to me, I'm like, yes, this was, it was a big deal. Yeah, look, I, I, I think it was a big deal. I don't think it was as big a deal as you do. Having been a member in good standing of the right-wing tribe at the time, the race stuff among fellow conservatives did not come up. And uh, and, I, when I, and I mean this at editorial meetings at National Review, I mean at the American Enterprise Institute, I mean at even at Tea Party rallies, which I, you know, I spoke at a few. And so as subtext, I think it mattered. I think the, the birther thing added context really pernicious context to the race part of it mm-hmm. because it helped otherize him in a way that was a problem. At the same time, it seems to me that confirmation bias is a problem for everybody. And if the explanation that you go with is the one you most want to be true, mm-hmm. you should ask yourself some questions about it. I do not I, – I, I think – look, I've conceded that I think race played a bigger role than I thought it did at the time. There was also the fact – that I saw a lot more evidence of in my actual daily professional life that this was what I wrote about at the time was that a big chunk of this was a delayed Bush backlash. That on the right, they were told, got to be you know, compassionate conservatism, big government conservatism. When somebody hurts, the government has got to move. Huge deficits, a crappy war that ended badly. And they put up with it because they liked Bush and Bush was a wartime president. Then they were asked to hold their nose and vote for McCain, a guy they didn't like. And then all of a sudden, when Centelli does his rant, it's about paying off people's mortgages. It's not about this black guy in the White right. House. That's what activated it. And I'm, again, willing to concede there was a lot. Some of the kindling might have been dry because of the racism part of it. But the monocausal explanation that this was all about a black guy um, being in the White House, I just think is f- just flatly untrue. I don't think it's monocausal. I think okay. that there, there's a, I think there's a, you know. It was exaggerated. My point is it's exaggerated. If, I, I would if, also if Hillary argue, Clinton won in 2008, you don't think that there would be a huge backlash against uh, a, the Hillary Clinton version of Obamacare if everything else was held constant? I think that the backlash would look very different. I think that the, How what, so? I think that it is, one, it is probably a different type of conspiratorial because I think that then it gets into the. We hear we start hearing about Vince Foster way earlier. Sure, sure, sure. But I think that it looks conceptually different, and I think that it would look. And I also think that the way, and this actually gets back to my point. You brought up birtherism. That birtherism was viewed as like good politics, or like maybe something that's like you know. And there's a piece in. I can't remember, town hall, like 2011, that was like Trump should run because Romney's weak and Trump is willing to do anything mm-hmm. and birtherism is just proof of that. This idea, like the mm-hmm. instrumentalized racism concept. Well, what but I call I think, Alinsky envy, which right. was running rampant on the right around then. At some point, there, 
this is a, a more note to myself, and I'm like, side note, explain Saul Alinsky. <laughs> um, but I think that there is a sense. I don't think the the Tea Party has monocausal results. I don't think in general. You know, I talk to people in the Tea Party. I've talked to enough people from the Koch Foundation who have been talking about these issues for a long time, but. It, what I think it played a part in it. I think it played I agree a bigger it played a part. part than. You. And I also think that you were work. You were at National Review. Mm-hmm. You were talking to people who are the ideological movers and shakers of conservatism. And I think that if there's something we've learned from 2016, it's that the ideological movers and shakers of conservatism and everyday voters who think of themselves as being conservative are not necessarily in close. No, I, 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 look, I agree with that. I mean, lots of people got way ahead of their troops and then their troops went off in a different direction. Right. And, and that's a huge problem on the right. It's why this podcast is called The Remnant. Indeed. <laughs> but at the same time, that should tell some some intellectuals on the left that if you're willing to stipulate that what I'm saying is is fairly accurate about among intellectual ideological movers and shakers, that no one was talking amongst themselves about racism, that maybe – constantly going to the racist explanation for all opposition to or, or or emphasizing racism as the explanation for opposition to Obama and Obamacare and all the rest that maybe that is that was overdone as well and like Orwell has this great line where he says a man can feel himself a failure and take to drink and become all the more a failure because he drinks as someone who now feels utterly politically homeless i kind of feel like the left invited a lot of this crap from the right, and the right is inviting a lot of this crap from the left. I think I could do a very similar piece to the one you did, saying was the right right was the right right about the left's patriotism problem all along, because the way the left has increasingly talked about America as this place that is just a collection of evils and sins of the past, and that those sins never get smaller in the rearview mirror, and they define this country. We're destined to arouse a populist backlash that said, okay, you don't want this country. I'm going to claim I own all of it. I think it's all ugly and awful. And I just think there's just so much blame to go around. I mean, I think that the point I wanted to make here is that this conversation matters and that this idea, you know, one of the things I really wanted to get across in the piece was not that the left is blameless on race, but mm-hmm. that there are specific issues for movement conservatism with regard to race. And I think that this goes back. And it, it's interesting just the kind of you're saying race is you're saying that race is the idea of how much racism played into the backlash against Obama was overdone. And mm-hmm. I think it was underdone. At some point, we're going to meet a third person who gets it just right. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's also the idea of this back and forth, and we could talk, I know you have to go, we could mm-hmm. talk about this for a long time, but I think something that's very important is that the people, the back and forth has been, especially over Trump and Trump tweets, it's been, and I, I will say this, it's been between white conservatives and white liberals. Mm-hmm. And then you you look at polling data and 80% of African Americans polled found Trump's tweets racist, mm-hmm. like 80%. That is that's pretty – that's 80. That is many <laughs> percentages. Yeah, yeah. And it is interesting how this debate has been going the is it racist, is it not racist, does it matter that it's racist, does it not not matter that it's racist has been taking place among people who can think – who are thinking about these issues and I think I – in a way more academic sense mm-hmm. and making the political arguments for or making the political arguments for 
or against instrumentalized racism and how it that's happened. And at the same time, you know, the people who are enduring this, mm-hmm. the non-white Americans, of which we are myriad, you know, <laughs> we're watching this going like, where, what? Yeah. Like, no one's that's listening fair. to us. That's and I think that that's, I think that's something I wanted to make. And I think it's 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 important for me to make. And um, I think that there have been a lot of, uh, just as a side point, there have been a lot of black journalists talking about this. And I'm aware that, you know, for a lot of people, this discussion is very unpleasant. It is not terribly pleasant for me either. Mm-hmm. I am not. I would much rather just be having a really in-depth conversation about the earned income tax credit. Mm-hmm. Me too. Or, yeah. You know, or like libertarian theory, or we, we could really get down into just some, like, the nooks and crannies of conservatism. But... This is, I'd say, to me, as important, and yeah. I think it's worth doing. Well, it, it's regardless of whether it's important, it's yeah. unavoidable, yeah. right? And you can't get away from it. But I talk about this all the time on the podcast. I really am envious of, you know, Earth Two, where there's a huge controversy about Mitch Daniels not wearing a tie to a meeting, right? You know, that's <laughs> that's the planet I want to be on right now. But, right, but I, I think it, it's worth it's worth doing this. It's worth having these conversations. I think that this. I'm glad that I'm here because I feel like this is helpful. In a sense. I, I hope it is, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, thank you yeah, very much for doing this. Of course. This. And um, we'll put links to all the yeah. stuff in the show notes and all the rest. Yeah. Jane Coaston, thank you very much for coming on. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. So uh, Jane has left the building. They uh, a- a- After we stopped recording, Jane and Jack, or Jack and Jane, or uh, uh, what were the books called? Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill. They um they bonded over their shared Ohio nessness. Not just Ohio nessness, uh, Cincinnati nessness. Because mm. I was googling her uh, while you guys were talking and figured out she's from Cincinnati. I asked her what part of Cincinnati she was from. First, she told me the town, and then like a good proving to me that she's from Cincinnati, like a good Cincinnati, and she told me where she went to high school, mm-hmm. and I kind of freaked out because she went to a high school like. In in Cincinnati, if you're there's a group of um, all male and all female Catholic schools that are sort of often paired off and seen as a sort of cohesive cultural mm-hmm. unit. And she went to one of the all female ones, and I'm an alumnus of one of the all male ones. Um, yeah, so I got really excited about yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. we started trading the old nicknames, and oh, it's all it's all dim in the dim recollections of my past now yeah it was, it was somewhat endearing like like exiles in a foreign land yes about, you know ancient times um what do you think of the whole conversation i think uh for the first time since the brian kaplan episode or maybe the yoram hazoni episode uh you were in this studio with someone who was not just going to sort of or her, with whom you were not in complete agree or more or less agreement, and so I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. So for me, it was thrilling. <laughs> um, I was I, I I was very engaged and wondering what was going to ha- come next. I, I, I think there have been other people I've been in disagreement with, but this is a little different. I agree. Um, and I, someone I, who came into the studio with a different worldview from yours. Yeah, uh, in almost in in many particulars. Uh, I like her. I, again, as I wrote in the G file, which I hope people will read and sign up for at Reagan thirty five X dot com. You like that? Um, um, I think she is, is makes an honest and good faith effort to make important distinctions and actually understand where conservatives are coming from. 
and I think we kind of talked talked around each other, particularly in the beginning. But I think it got more fruitful towards the end. That was a very difficult thing to do, given how small this room is. It is. It is. <laughs> it's very complicated, and um, it's also. I mean, you bring up Brian Kaplan. She has the. She does not have the Tyler Cowen problem. Of <laughs> of. Uh, I mean, she's a talker like me. She can keep going, and I can keep going. And um, but I thought it was important to let her get her views out. Is that and, why uh, the episode kept going for another twenty minutes after you said you need to wrap it up? Yes, that's that's one of the reasons why. And um, anyway, the lot of that she could be on. I think that the I still think that the that the left, because it considers itself to have a monopoly on political virtue. Um, and considers racism to be the highest, or I should say the lowest form of political or personal expression, that they're often guilty of, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, thinking when it comes to, to racism. But, you know, it was, I, I think she's absolutely right. We agree entirely about the nature of Trump's racism. It's a, it's a lazy sort of 1970s New York racism that is not definitional to him because very few ideas are definitional to him. It's more like the nearest weapon to hand kind of stuff. So anyway, thanks again to Jane Gosen for coming on. Good. You better not badmouth someone from the greater GCL, GGCL community in my presence. Never, never, never. I never would do something like that. And um, not quite clear what the future schedule of The Remnant is. Uh, I mean... The podcast shall continue, but I'm going to be leaving town not too long, and uh, uh, so we'll figure all of that out. Maybe we'll do some reports from the road like we did last year. I remember last year, where was I? Where I was sitting in the front of my RV in some municipal parking lot in, was it Oregon or Idaho, and was talking to you by Skype. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, were you were you looking at me just to sort of for your own recollection? Yeah, because I couldn't remember where I was. Okay, because I'm not. I can't keep track of your vacation schedule for you. I know, but I mean, I thought maybe you remember when I said I'm here in oh. X that you might know what X was. But it was in a Walmart park, parking lot, wasn't it? No, not the actual podcast. I, I slept in a couple Walmart parking lots in an RV, but that's a that's a, that's, that's a tale for another time. Okay, so. Uh, excited to say that Steve Hayes, who I'm going to go off to have a meeting with, is in the United States of America. It's very exciting. I'm also going to... Surprised they let him back into the country. Uh, You know, he used to be on the terror watch list. Yeah. And uh, um, Jack is staring laser beams at me. Um, You're lucky. That's just a metaphor. (laughs) And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I'll see you next time. No, you on this podcast.